As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Mr Dale was arrested on this date for this burglary. On such and such a date, the main witnesses were murdered. He was then charged with this. On such and such a date, this person was murdered. Again, the only witness against him. I mean, when you look at the chronology of all of that, yes, you could look at that and just go, well, it's got to be him. (laughs) 
Last week, we heard from disgraced former drug squad detective Paul Dale about his early career and the crazy, hazy days of policing Melbourne's drug-driven underworld in the early 2000s. We heard about food court meetings with famous gangsters, about suburban pubs where criminals and detectives drank together at the end of the day, and about trying to get on with your life when you've been accused of committing terrible crimes. But no one's quite been able to convict you or kill you. This week, we'll delve deeper into some of those crimes. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Next week, we hear from Mandy Hodson, who, along with her brother Andrew, discovered the bodies of her parents, Terry and Christine Hodson, in their home in May 2004. They'd both been shot twice in the back of the head at close range as they knelt on the floor with their hands tied behind their backs. Terry had for several years been a registered police informant and our guest today, Paul Dale, and another drug squad detective, David Meeshel, were Terry's police handlers. At the time of Terry and Christine's murder, all three men were facing robbery charges pertaining to a break-in at a house in Dublin Street, Oakley, in Melbourne. The house had been under surveillance by the drug squad for months and was known to be holding large quantities of cash and ecstasy tablets. Hodson and Michel were arrested at the scene of the robbery, but Terry Hodson's statement implicating our guest, Paul Dale, was the only piece of evidence against him. Thus, Terry's murder was the end of the case against Paul Dale... David Michel served 12 years for the robbery. So let's hear how Paul remembers it. Before you got into the drug squad, a couple of years before that, Terry and Christine's children were pinched by the drug squad for some fairly minor drug offences. Is that fair to say? I don't know exactly what they were. Well, I think they might have been serious enough that Andrew was remanded in custody. We're not talking major, major, but they were serious enough that Andrew was remanded and I think that became an issue between Andrew and his father because I think his father, Terry, refused or wouldn't pay to have him bail. Is that why Terry became an informant? Ah, uh, Yes. So that I believe that was the start point because that's when, yes, you're right, Michel was involved in that arrest and that's definitely the start point that I, that I can... So the drug squad uses the charges against the two Hodson children yes. to influence their father That's into right. becoming a, an informant That's right. for the drug squad. Yes. He was really well connected in the ecstasy and cocaine area at the time and ecstasy was really just starting to blossom, I guess, in Victoria at the time. Well, and of course, the other thing is the relationship between Terry's daughter, Mandy, and David Michel. Yes. I've read other reports that say that David Michel was treated like a son-in-law, that he was a part of the family. David was very close with Terry, very, very close. And obviously, we now know a, a lot more um, in hindsight as to how close through the daughter. So, But I got close with Terry as well, to be honest. He was a really easygoing guy. So if we move forward to... Grand final day, 2003, you're having a barbecue. Yeah, that's right. A, a traditional barbecue, do it every year, still to today. We're having my grand final barbecue at home. 27th of September, yep. 2003. As you tell it, you get a phone call from your, the, the bloke who's in your crew, David Michel. Yes. From an ambulance. Yes. 
to say I've been bitten by a police dog. Yes. You go, why? You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Your crew and the state surveillance unit have been... Operation Gallup, I think it was called. Yeah, back that's in right, the day. on a house yeah. in Dublin, Dublin Street, Street, famously. Mm. It's a drug house. It's a house where drugs and cash and a pill press are, you know that. And so you're just trying to figure out when the raid is going to be and all that kind of stuff. That's right. So we were, we were watching that house 24-7 and early days it was really resource heavy or whatever you want to, whatever that word is. Resource intensive. Intensive, yes. So then Meaning we, lots of people are working on this. Yes, watching it, physically watching it. And eventually to help us out with that, we were able to get a hidden covert camera across the road at a neighbour's house to watch rather than physically having to be there all the time. But every day the tapes had to be changed. They were back VHS tape systems back in them days. Um, So the tapes had to be changed. So someone still had the job every day of going out there covertly and, and changing the tapes. So it wasn't unusual for someone to be there. Um, so when Dave Meeshel tells me that he'd gone there to change the tapes and and then it's been attacked by the police dog and you know this sort of, oh no what was it he someone had he saw people breaking in or well whatever initially and you them. say in your statements because I, I have happened to have in front of me the summary of evidence uh, the Office of Public Prosecutions v Paul Dale so I've got people's statements from back in the day and and sort of progressively afterwards and so you said that the barbecue was terrific you'll be glad to know. And that it was a bit later on at night, most of the guests had left and you actually weren't really drinking much that night, so you had a pretty clear memory. And you got a phone call from David saying that he was in the back of an ambulance, but it was later than you knew roughly when he was to change the tapes and you knew that this was later than that. Yeah, well, he came to my house um, in the police, in the undercover car, police car. So he'd come to my house that day and whatever time that was during the day to, to tell me, I think, that that's what he was doing. And there'd been a change of plans because I think Sam Jennings was initially a rostered type thing to do it. She's another officer and she had asked him to do it. Yes, so then you get a phone call later in the evening from him. Uh, He's in the back of an ambulance and says, I've been bitten by a police dog. You say, why? How? He says he went back to have a look at the property in Dublin Street and he saw two people running away from it. He then pursued them and then he got bitten by the police dog. Do you remember the moment when you when you found out that he wasn't checking on the house, he wasn't changing the tapes, changing the tapes, or he wasn't chasing other offenders? That he and Terry Hodson, your informant, had tried to rob the bloody house that you'd been observing for weeks. You know, it's what's interesting is Dave actually has denied that he still maintains his original version of events, even after twelve years in custody. That he was chasing other people? Yes. Really? He still maintains that. Given that Terry Hodson is no longer able to speak for himself, I think it's reasonable to hear some material from the summary of evidence of the Office of Public Prosecutions v Paul Dale that comes from Terry's own statements to police. Investigators allege that on September 8, 2003, at about 12.25pm, our guest, Paul Dale, another drug squad detective, David Meeshel, and their informant, drug dealer Terry Hodson met at Romeo's restaurant Turak Road and began conspiring with Hodson to commit the burglary. Hodson stated that it was at this meeting that the two detectives explained to him the details of Operation Gallop. He stated that our guest Paul Dale explained that the targets inside the house under surveillance had been travelling between Melbourne and Sydney buying ecstasy tablets and that the other detective, David Meeshel, explained that there would be a large quantity of both cash 
and ecstasy tablets inside the house. Terry Hodson stated that our guest Paul Dale asked him during that meeting if he would participate in the robbery with the two detectives and that he, Terry Hodson, replied yes. He further stated that a series of attempts to rob the house in Dublin Street were carried out by all three men over the following three weeks. For various reasons, all of these attempts were aborted until the night of Saturday, September 27, grand final night. When Hodson arrived, he was informed that our guest Paul Dale couldn't make it as he had guests coming over to his house, but he still expected his cut. Hodson and Michel entered through the front door of the home in Dublin Street at about 7.15pm. As per the plan, they dropped several black bags of cash and pills over the back fence for later collection and left again through the front door roughly seven minutes later at about 7.22pm. They then made their way through the grounds of nearby Amsley Primary School to Terry Hodson's car, where Hodson stated he placed his pistol, gloves, balaclava and false registration plate in the boot. He stated they then noticed police activity coming from the house in Dublin Street, so they retreated back to the grounds of the nearby school to hide. Michel stated he was going back to get the bags and that if anyone questioned Hodson, he should say he was waiting for someone. Hodson stated that was the last time he saw Michel. Within minutes, Michel was observed running through the school car park by a police canine unit and detained. According to the summary of evidence, he sustained serious injuries while trying to evade arrest. Terry Hodson was arrested a short time later at approximately 7.40pm in the grounds of the primary school and conveyed to Oakley Police Station where he requested the duty officer contact our guest, Paul Dale. As we know, at roughly the same time, Detective David Michel was contacting our guest, Paul Dale, from the back of an ambulance. When you look at the chronology of Terry's interviews, his very first one, official interview, he denies all knowledge of it. Of of anything? Yeah, of of having been involved in the burglary. So that's his first interview, I believe first two, uh, denying involvement. In the background, you have people like Peter DeSanto, who was running the Seizure Task Force investigating drug squad corruption. And you've got this burglary that appears to have been a policeman and an informer involved in. So Seizure get involved. DeSanto was very keen to come in and find out whether there were any others involved. Sure. And so when I, so when you look at that, and I was meeting with Terry, with David, they knew that we were together like this all the time and we were the two that met with Terry all the time pretty easy for Terry to say what can I do to help myself because they're saying to Terry you're going to do 12 years because of your criminal history you'll do 12 years over this and it's documented these inducements you need to give us more and you know what Carl Williams did the same Carl Williams did exactly the same Carl yeah, you're doing stick, 35 let's years let's just stay with Terry at the but moment this is how inducements work no I get that but why I get that but why I mean, they also, so they knew that you were with David Michel meeting with Terry all the time, but surely they also knew that David was very close to Terry, David spending, watching over there playing cards, watching television. We didn't know that at the time. Nobody else knew that at the time. No one knew that at the time. Okay. So these are, this is all within the first 24 or 48 hours. 
Sure. Of the arrest. Yes. So no one knew the... Conspiracy against you has gone on for years. That's what I, you know, why... But it started from that. Yeah. It started from that very event and that was... So who? what does Terry do? And his words are, I can give you a three-striper. That's all he says initially. So that gets them really interested now and that's and that's when it starts to go pear-shaped for them i mean it goes pear-shaped for me it's just weird it's it's weird to me that they would throw you in a copper a detective they didn't care uh desanto desanto and the siege task force i can tell you now did not give two hoots shit kicker doesn't matter terry hodson nobody why had you made some enemies do you feel like you would done something to piss people off? I don't think so. Um, I'm racking my brain now to try and how or where or when I could have upset anyone. Um, Matter was fairly live at that stage. Yes, you're right. I had upset some fairly senior people. Um, So what happened was when was charged with murder, and it was a straightforward murder. It was a, he shot a person, a, a bike on a motorbike in his front in his front driveway. This motorbike rider had had followed him home after being cut off, and um, and got out. Apparently, gone inside, grabbed the gun, come out, and shot this bloke, killed him, and then runs down the street, throws the gun down in a drain. Um, had was you know early days into security himself, and the whole place had security cameras, so he's captured himself after his arrest contacts me i'm on leave and i'm talking to the detectives who i know from the homicide squad i hadn't long left there and basically he wanted to talk to me i've said well <laughs> what's what's going on and well, there's not much i can help you with it like there's nothing i yeah what can you do for the bloke but i think he was obviously in a situation at the time his mind's probably racing as to what I, what do i do you know i'm i've just been charged oh, you with try anything. would you so yeah, anyway yep, yep. so that's so that initial contact with but see some time later i was asked i was asked just before the trial started was i aware of ever aware of life ever being in danger or being threatened, um, which I was. I was aware of that. And it happened at the Union Hotel one night. And so I made a statement to say that, yes, I was. A person had made a, a, a threat, a death threat against to me. Was this a police officer? It wasn't a police officer, oh, okay. no. No, okay. no, it was, a, it was another crook um, who All I right. didn't, didn't know. But, but that statement then caused grief for the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So I'm then basically they've tried to stand over me to change my statement or withdraw it. I spoke to my superintendent at the time at the drug squad, at the MDID, and he said, stand by your statement. Mm-hmm. I then got called into the Crown Prosecutor's Office with the informant from the homicide squad who I knew. Um, they called me in there for a meeting. I went in and he was... Um, very, how would you say? Well, he clearly he didn't like that, that I'd made this statement and he was going to do whatever it took to discredit that statement. So do you think he that was behind? Oh, I think that was the start of, yeah. Some, so, and that's yeah. just come to you now? Oh, no, memory? no, no, no. I, that's been around for a long, long right. time. But, yeah, no, you just, when that question was asked, 
was there any background? Did you upset anyone? Well, yes, absolutely. There were some very upset upset people as a result of that. And it's funny because some months later, I was I was in the in a corridor waiting for a lift, and some boys from the homicide squad that were investigating another matter, and they wanted me to go into jail to speak to or it might have been Carl. Uh, it was one of them sort of thing. Can you go and do I reckon it was in this situation. And I turned to them and I said, boys, I can't because I'd been told I was under an investigation by the Ethical Standards Department in relation to my association with So there was a, there was a uh, Ethical Standards Department investigation into me and my involvement and association with way back then, which, by the way, cleared me of any wrongdoing um that's one that's never ever been brought doesn't get brought up too often I but bet, no. no that that file's probably Where's been lost um <laughs> yes yeah, so the boy so I, just, I actually declared it to the boys look as much as i'd like to help you out you know this is the situation but when we talk about evidence against you the yes. the other thing is that there's there were a lot of police officers in and around the surveillance operation on dublin street who later gave evidence that wasn't real flash against you and david michel ssu a lot of state surveillance unit officers who, who said, probably never met me. Well, this is interesting. And, of course, their names are redacted in the report, yeah. so we'll never know who they were. But they said things like their interaction with Dale and Michal and the manner in which they were instructed to carry out their duties on the day was strange and not normal practice. On a number of occasions, SSU observed vehicles or suspects moving to and from the address and Dale and Michal failed to inform SSU of these movements. So they're accusing you of not participating completely in the surveillance of not reporting things that are happening in the surveillance of the Dublin Street property. So evidence was given against you by fellow police officers. Yeah, look, a lot of police officers, again, had never met me. And one thing... Well, these are people, though, who were part of Operation Gallup. Yeah, not really. Um, The state surveillance... Well, that's what the summary of evidence says. Correct. The the summary of evidence is often quite a... Yeah, it's exactly... That's the police have written that Mm. um, with the assistance of the DPP by the time it gets to that level. Yep. Um, But the DPP is purely just um, manipulating words in the right place, you know, fixing up spelling errors maybe. That's about all. Um, Basically, it's written by the police who are trying to convict me. Yep. So in their... So their whole priority in that that summary, um, it's which, the same which sort is, of thing you wrote to try and convict other people. Absolutely, and you so. just put everything in that that makes them sound like the worst person possible, and he's got to be guilty, whether whether the ev- actual evidence is there or not. Let's paint this picture that makes it look so bad. This person so bad that, well, even though there's no real evidence as such, they'll think he's got to have done something, and let's con- um, hopefully we might get a conviction. And that's that's what that rubbish is. And a big part of it, I think, was this idea that Hodson knew so much about the operation. Officer Jennings said that Hodson's statements were so detailed and so accurate, he must have been there with us doing what we were doing. He knew everything from the covert warrants that were being executed to listening at devices. She said that he knew so much about your personal life, Paul. There was a moment where apparently he knew about you leaving work early to pick up your son. 
So that was the the insinuation was that he so, must have had a relationship with you, a yeah, close relationship with you. Yeah, he certainly had a close relationship with me. That's no problem. Mm. Um, but that was a relationship that I had with many other criminals that I was either had as informers or was trying to. But what they're saying I mean, is that you that, that's how they were trying to prove your well, inclusion okay. in this robbery. When you say that, though, would that evidence say well, what that those allegations come from Samantha Jennings? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Now Samantha Jennings was a young. Um, female constable, senior constable, came into the squad to do temporary duties, I believe, or may have came in on an actual promotion to become a detective. She lands on my crew. She was really good. Um, Her father was um, a high-ranking officer in Victoria Police at the time. Uh, I can't think of his name, but um, he was high-ranking. I didn't even know that, to be honest, for the whole time she was with me. It's irrelevant because she's Samantha Jennings. Yep, so she's Samantha Jennings and it's irrelevant until the point where they need her to bag me out. I only mentioned Samantha's high-ranking officer father because Samantha over the journey was influenced to change her statement and she made a complaint actually on the day that we all had to make our first statements. A senior officer uh, entered the room where she was being interviewed and stopped the interview and basically said to her she and read her what she was saying and basically said that she had to change it. And that was in the first time, first one. Because um, in her first statement she refers to you in glowing terms. She yeah. does. She and says so, that you were basically a great boss, yeah. supportive. Extremely helpful, patient yeah. and thorough. How did we get from there to there? And over the years, like I can't, yeah, the, I don't the know what the journey. the last statement was like four or five years later or Correct. something. Correct. Is that a usual practice that? Someone would do several statements over several years and they change a lot. No, no. And in fact, if you've got that situation, you've got a real problem when you get to court. Because, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because every one of those statements is acknowledged as being the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, otherwise, it's perjury. So I don't see how things can change in that person's actual knowledge of at the time of the event. What went on? No, of course. And all we ever talk about now is how our memories aren't photographic and, you know, how we can't trust our memories. And then I was shocked to find out that that statement had been made years later. It shocks you, but it makes me so angry. Sunday, 16th of May 2004, the Hodsons are murdered in their home in Kew. It is a case that we have talked about many times because it feels like all roads lead to this Mm. case. This is a murder that you were accused of. Charged with. Yeah, you were charged with. (laughs) When the Hodsons were found by two of their children, their son came out into the driveway screaming, Dale's done it, Dale's done it. So there were a lot of people who assumed that you were responsible. Well, I was the first person arrested. But look, I've spoken to Charlie Bazin. We're not spoken to him. I've thought about it for a long time about why Charlie would have done that. And I've read books and I've heard things. And And look, of course, I'd have to be spoken to. I didn't think I needed to be initially arrested um, because I was released without charge early at the time uh, in 04. Now, still, there are many people who believe that you ordered the murder. In fact, that you and Carl Williams met to chat about it many times. The reason people believe that is? Oh, the, 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 my meeting with Nicola Gobbo when I sought out her for legal advice. Oh, and, my God. I'm reading yeah. in your book about when you said, oh, well, I'm in a lot of legal trouble, so I want the best. Mm. So I'm going to go and get Nicola Gobbo to represent me and get some legal advice from her. And Of course, having no idea in the world that she is... A police informer. When did you find out about that? Well, I didn't find out that she was an informer for some time, for some years, but certainly when I was originally arrested for the murder, I was remanded in custody, and then I can't remember how long it was. I think it was certainly in the next 
week or two. We're preparing for my bail application. Tony Hargraves, who's a very prominent criminal barrister who the police association use and and hence any serving police officers or police officers that have any issues uh, also have to use him. Tony came and visited me out at the Acacia Unit Barwon Prison. We're in an interview room, uh, visitor's room type thing, and he tells me, well, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, at that stage, all I knew that she'd she'd tape recorded me and made a statement. I was reading this and I thought, did you cry? I probably didn't cry right then and there in front of Tony. I was just completely because my mind was going to me and And you are, uh, they are actively trying to break you down, and then you're told this incredibly bizarre, devastating piece of information. Because look, yes, I knew her professionally, yeah, personally, yeah, and yeah, you were mates. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's and I've got to be mindful there because they always try and use that fact that I knew her socially was no, she was never providing him with any legal advice, you know, and that's the that's the thing they've had to run, you know, the defence they've had to run all the time because they knew if it got found out that she was giving information against her own clients, which is now has been found out, but back then clearly they had a real major issue because they had had her in, informing for some years, which, yes, as you said, I had no idea about that. But so to find out, Nicola Gobbo, this was the most high-profile criminal barrister in our state at that time. You did not pick up a paper or watch the news without seeing Nicola Gobbo representing Tony Mockbell, Carl Williams, or any uh, number of high-profile criminals coming in and out of the Supreme Court or the courts, she was known by us at the drug squad to be the person to go to to get you bail. And that's why you went to her. And that's why I went to her you from the di- very start. You weren't directed to her? No. By anyone? No. You just went, you went the to her? From the very first time yeah. I was arrested back in the Dublin Street thing and, and I was read my rights and we got back to the Ethical Standards Department and it became quite clear to me through the interview that, hang on a minute, there's more to this. Um, you know, it came clear that Hodgson has made allegations and whatnot and I thought, no, well, actually, I think I do need to speak to a lawyer. Nicola Gobbo was the person I called. Um, and then she attended upon me and then attended upon me at the at the bail, you know, in, down in the cells and continued to assist me over the next number of years. Clearly, unbeknownst to me, she was a police informer and unbeknownst to any to all her clients at the time. So that's the moment I would have thought this is a hu- this something huge <sighs> going on here. Look, it's I, you, I, I went tingly yeah. actually when you said it and I know my voice has probably changed because the hairs do go up in the back of my neck because it's it's at a time when you're at your lowest mentally, I've been completely isolated. I've been picked out of the APCO service station, which I operated and, and ran as my own business mm-hmm. for a number of years at that stage. I've got my child and my wife back there. I'm there at work early in the morning. 20 police cars turn up after they flew in a helicopter up there because this is how important it was to arrest Paul Dale in, in dramatic scenes mm-hmm. and go from there straight from being remanded there straight down to Barwon Prison, straight into this isolation unit. There I am in a bright red jumpsuit, all zipped up, sh- shackled and um, and placed in this tiny little two-and-a-half by two-and-a-half metre cell and left there for six weeks. Now, Tony came and see me within about the two weeks and we were going to make a bail application and that's when he told me about Nicola Gobbo. I guess the, the full the full story doesn't come out for some time, obviously, but... It, it was incredible and, and all I did was I remember standing up off the chair and walking around and Tony sitting there and because um, no one could actually physically get to near me other than a lawyer back then. 
Uh, mind you, she'd visited me in jail as well. No and, and, way. Yeah, so she'd visited me in the fir- when I was first remanded back in 02, 03, whatever that was. She visited upon me as my lawyer and I gave her a number of documents that I'd been sitting in my isolation unit at Port Phillip and I'd been given access to a pen and paper. And so I was making all these notes in regards to, you know, Hodson, Michel, you know, the Operation Gallup and all the things that, you know, that I say, well, these go to show that I couldn't possibly be involved in that. I gave that all to her. She took it straight to her police handlers and gave it to them. Now, if that's not legally professional privilege breach, I mean, there's no clearer. I mean, she signs in as a lawyer. She comes and visits me as a lawyer. Nicola Gobodeau offered to act for me in a pro bono sense, and that's you know, a lot of people ask me, why would a high-profile criminal barrister ever do it for free? Well, she did it for a lot of people for free, believe it or not. She was really trying to be the person in the scene. And so to have, and my case was quite high-profile as well, even back then. She wanted to be the person to be seen doing all these high-profile matters. That's the way I saw it. Now I look back, now I know she was targeted. She was told, get involved with this bloke, get involved in any of these cases, get all the information you can, and we'll work out whether we'll disclose it, use it, or whatever. But it's not for the police to do that, because once you come to court, the obligations on the prosecution are to provide all the relevant information. And I think it's goddamn relevant that the barrister that people are using is a police informant. I don't find out, to answer your question, I actually don't find out that she's an actual police informant probably until everyone else does when it gets divulged by the High Court um, after Vic Police. Because I, I did move away. You say, you know, why do you want to get back involved? Why do you want to write this book? You know, wouldn't you want to just stay away? I have stayed away. You know, I, I live quite a distance from Melbourne and I, um, and I have stayed away. I don't have any contact with police officers. Um, that was all prevented from the very start. So I've lost a lot of friends, a lot of friends, Um but that's, that's gone on for years, so I've sort of moved on from all of that and the disappointment in, in a lot of that. So why am I back involved? Because the Royal Commission's finally, finally a Royal Commission's been declared so some truth can come out. After the break, Vicky Petratus, who co-wrote Paul Dale's book Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me. But next week, we'll be revealing the identities of two special guests who'll be joining us on our national tour in May. And patrons will be able to buy their tickets before everyone else, including tickets to special, limited, pre-show Q&A sessions with our guests. If you're not yet a patron and you'd like to get in early and get those tickets, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Pod and sign up. And there's a link in the show notes to this episode and also on our Facebook page. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Coming up on Australian True Crime, I'll tell you why I think there should be an inquest into the death of gangster Carl Williams. But first, thank you to these patrons. Linda Liu, Rosalie Ann Clark, Adam Swanick, Kate Barker, Rachel Marshall, Alice Simpson and Amity Eagleton. Emily Webb and Vicky Petratus have written several true crime books each. Last week they talked about the responsibility that comes with putting their names to someone else's story, particularly when that story is contentious, to say the least. This week they discussed some of the most bizarre aspects of the Paul Dale story, which Vicky's been immersed in for such a long time. It's a story that's now gaining a lot more credibility because of the shocking Royal Commission into the management of police informants, brought about by the revelation that gangland defence lawyer Nicola Gobbo was a registered police informant, feeding information about her clients back to police all along. She was working with the police. She had offered to tape him. She was paid in the lead-up to his murder trial or it cost the taxpayer over $300,000 to keep her for the 10 months. So there were 32 flights. There was $1,000 a week pocket money or spending money or whatever. There were birthday flowers. There was limousines. And, and I thought that was excessive. And that was before she sued them. So then when they, then this was all to protect her to be a witness against him. And of course, for the 10 months, when it came time to be a witness, she said, I'm unwell and this has stressed me out. And so I'm not going to do it. And then they started to push her and they started to threaten her. And then she, because we had all the back and forth legal letters. And so you can see that everyone's getting very testy. And then finally she sues them and for an undisclosed amount, which we've now found out to be $2.88 million. So all of this was in the original book. Did you use Nicola Gobbo's name in that original book? Yeah, because it was off the radar. One thing that I think was really telling that we now know is that when Paul was charged, he went to court and he asked for the meetings of this steering committee and that were handling Nicola Gobbo. 
And so they said, no, there's no notes. There's no, you know, we met weekly, but there were no notes. And finally, Inspector Steve Smith on the stand says, well, actually, you know, I think there were 30,000 pages in notes. So when Paul's lawyer said, well, we want those notes, we want to find out the extent to which she was being managed against her own client. And so they wanted an eight-month adjournment and then about a week or two later there's a leak and Carl Williams dies because he's a witness against Paul and Nicola's a witness and all of a sudden the charges are dropped. And you have you have to be a bit nervous about that because we now know that they did not, they were never going to hand over these 30,000 pages and I suspect they're the same documents that the Royal Commissioner has been saying where are these documents that you're promising? And because they didn't want anyone to know the extent. And we know that now because at the time we only, we thought she had only done this to him. We had no idea that there was a, a huge, huge legal skirmish ahead. Of course, Paul was jumping up and down with excitement when this all broke because he's saying, this is what I've been saying. And it wasn't just me. It was everybody. Everybody was misused and mishandled by the Victoria Police wielding their power, maybe unethically. When he went to the Australian Crime Commission and he was promised absolute secrecy to say whatever he wanted. So they would ask him questions like, well, if you didn't kill the Hodsons, who do you think did? So he, as a cop, would say, well, it could have been someone, it could have been him, it could have been him. And he would give his professional opinion and that was absolutely, under the Australian Crime Commission rules, absolutely secret. And when he was charged with murder alongside Rod Collins, his Australian Crime Commission testimony was copied and given to Rod Collins in prison And the next thing Paul knows is that it's being circulated through the prison and he's getting threatening letters from saying, hey, I've got the page from your statement where you said I did this or you thought it could have been me or whatever. And Paul's sitting in a cell in Acacia Unit, really in a state of high anxiety anyway, thinking, oh, my God, the whole prison has got this statement. And I think... Paul aside, if the Australian Crime Commission says if you come before us, you are compelled to give evidence and you can't tell anyone, you can't bring a lawyer and you can't say that you're not going to answer. So if they're the rules and then with that comes certain obligations on their part, you can't just change your mind. And pretty much when his lawyers got in touch with the Australian Crime Commission and said, what the hell? You've actually put his life in danger because people from everywhere started to ring his wife and threatened to cut her head off and kill the kids. And so he was in danger and so was his family. And they went, oh, yeah, we changed our mind. That kind of thing you can't do. And the, the media, I don't know why, were always a little bit cagey about what Carl Williams was offered. And I had a letter from an assistant commissioner or a deputy commissioner 
to the Australian Tax Office saying, uh, you know, dear ATO, we need our $750,000 back from paying George Williams's tax bill because there's a ruling in a case in Queensland that's ruled if people are witnesses in a case and are paid, then that can cast doubt on their testimony. And so in light of that ruling, people won't look favourably or the court won't look favourably on our payment of his $750,000 tax bill. I thought my tax bill was bad this year, but that's a tax bill. Yeah. And the Victoria Police paid it and the taxpayer paid it. Yeah, the taxpayer. I think that's the outrage from, for want of a better word, the ordinary Australian, is like, why is this scumbag crim getting this stuff paid for him, his kids' school fees? I can't afford my own kids' school fees. And here's, here's where it goes nutty. And I think there were so many nutty moments in this book. So... George Williams's tax bill is paid. He gets a letter from the ATO saying your tax bill has been paid in full. Then Vicpol takes it back. So George Williams gets a letter saying you have to pay it now. And he's going, well, I'm not going to pay it because here's my letter saying it's been paid. And then Carl is promised the million dollars reward for getting Paul. So he makes a statement that the Victoria Police helped him create So I'm not saying that makes it untrue, but I'm saying you have to question its truth. And so he's promised the million-dollar reward and his daughter was in private school being paid for. So step number one in my outrage was the fact that in every wanton poster, it's reward paid for the capture and conviction of, right? So you don't get your reward until a conviction. And so here's Carl making this statement against Paul with the help of detectives being taken out of prison and having conjugal visits, which is a whole other can of worms. But he's getting these payments. So when Carl dies in prison, Roberta and George Williams sue the Victoria Police for loss of income. Now, this is where it gets nutty. Yeah, that does sound ridiculous. Because they're incarcerated forever, husband and son. He's, he was going to earn a substantial income to make this statement. So this makes it so galling when this whole story broke and all of these senior police officers are on the news and they've got, you know, their furrowed brow and they're saying, well, you've got to understand the gangland war. We wanted to get these bad guys off the street. And then Paul looks at everyone in his case going, you're actually offering Carl Williams reduced sentences to get him back on the street to get me. And understandably, he gets outraged because that's blatantly in his case not true. One witness against him when they finally took him to court after the murder charges were dropped, he went to court for lying at the Australian Crime Commission, even though he was promised that nothing he said could ever be generated into charges against him. And so, you know, he goes to court and George Williams is a witness. God knows what he was offered. And there was a witness B who murdered three people and and only got charged with murdering one and got trafficable quantities of drugs for free in exchange for a statement. So he's going to serve 12 years and then maybe live next door to you or live next door to me. And so Paul's like, they're saying that they did this to get them off the streets, but they're going to be on the streets a lot sooner than what we hoped. And it brings me again to that, this question burning in my mind. Why did the top brass in the Victoria Police want Paul Dale so much? Yeah, he doesn't know. I think he, 
It seemed to be the, that it was a path. It seemed to me as a researcher that it was a path that they got onto the night that Terry Hodson was caught at the drug house when they said, give us another name, even though this was how Terry operated. So he would be ringing Dave and Paul at the drug squad all the time and they're saying, Terry, we can't come and investigate your job. We're doing marijuana. Marijuana, I've got cocaine or I've got ecstasy. So they were used to this one-upmanship. And so when Terry is caught, and they say, well, you've got a two-striper, you've got a senior Connie, I'll give you a three-striper. And it was just so, in Paul's mind, so typical of Terry, I'll give you the next best thing. And it was like those cops that night believed him and they and it set them on a path that they, they never wavered from. It seems to me that in these criminal circles that some stuff can hinge on just one person's personality quirks and the same thing that seemed to have driven Terry Hodson in being an informer, and he was a prolific informant, yeah. it seems to be the same thing that's driven Nicola Gobbo. Now, I just can't understand why. She was playing such a dangerous game. I mean, for what? She had a very prestigious name. She had a very good law career. I mean, from what we found out in the Royal Commission and you stated in the book, don't you, that she was turned into an informant because she had a lot to lose when she was a university student and got found with drugs and then she was able to progress her career. Why would you jeopardize that? It's, it's, a, it's a good question in this whole case because maybe she just really liked doing it. I've been out on police rounds and I've been out on patrol with police and I've been in the police helicopter and there is an adrenaline rush to being in a car that's got lights and sirens on and hurtling down the highway and being on the move towards something really exciting or dramatic and I never felt the need to repeat that on a regular basis. But I, I could see that for some people being in the thick of it like that could be really addictive. Because yeah. as a writer, it's all care, no responsibility. So I don't, if I go to a scene, I went to a scene of a fatal accident where there's, there's some guy lying on the road dead and, you know, really confronting stuff, but I don't have to solve anything. All I have to do is paint a word picture of that to make people think about being more careful on, in their cars and and then I can walk away. But the cops that I left behind couldn't walk away. They had to do solving and court appearances and, uh, you know, maybe it, it is addictive for people like Terry and Nicola. When we've mentioned to people around the traps that we're going to speak with Paul Dale and that a book's coming out, a few people are like, why? Why is he doing this? Why? He's a, a lucky bastard. Why would you want to put your head out there again? What's your take on that? We had a moment when I was writing the the initial book and we were at a pub we would we would meet because he's in the country and I'm in the city and we met at some pub and um and I just got a table and my laptop and plugged it in and he 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 at that stage was a pacer I think he was so full of frustration and he just he just couldn't sit and that was part of the PTSD from being in prison as well. But he would just pace back and forward. And he was telling me the story about how a journalist had said that he was in the armed robbery squad and was having a power nap at a uh, traffic lights and let 
a criminal escape. And, you know, that was when he went to his lawyer and he said, look, this is blatantly untrue. I was never in the armed robbery squad and this is just untrue. And that's when the lawyer said, your reputation is so far down the toilet. And he looked over at me and he goes, what do I do? And I said, Paul, you write a book. That's what you do. And for me, I guess it was really important for me to give him the right of reply. And everybody else had mentioned him, like Charlie Bazina, who we all adore, had mentioned Paul in his book. And Christine Nixon had written a book and mentioned Paul. And so everybody's talking about Paul. And of course, the newspapers talked about him all the time. And he didn't have a right of reply. And I think it never hurts in society. There's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, don't have a voice. And I'm very big on giving people voice if they need it, and he needed it. And Paul, of course, has a family. He's still with his wife. His son was a baby when he first went to jail. What can you share about what you observed as the impact of all that's happened and even whether his wife was supportive of you writing the book about him? Look, I think that Diddy was, Paul's wife was always, always had him at number one. She was always very protective of him. Because I think while we can see the exterior person, a partner at home will see a nightmare or will see the pacing or will see, will be privy to what's really going on. And I think she was worried originally that a book would cause him anxiety. And and I think it, it probably did. It, the original book, I don't think he read it. Like he, he was that angry at what had happened and, and just it kind of fueled him to go, what am I supposed to be doing? Like this is just, I, I, I found myself in this position that's quite crazy. But I also interviewed Paul's mum and dad and sometimes when you look at the people around someone, that gives you a really good idea too. And his mum, you know, his dad was in Rotary and he, he had a butcher shop or has a butcher shop in Yakandanda and his mum was the mayor of Yakandanda, salt of the earth people. And, you know, his dad said to me, I went up to the, the Dale family home and, and he said, you know, we, we were too scared really to, to get the paper. We, we were almost bracing ourselves, like our anxiety levels would be, would Paul be on at this time? And we forget that behind every figure that's made to look threatening and looming in the newspaper, which isn't what he looks like at all, but behind every character, there's a mum and a dad and a wife and, and children and a community that admire them. And, and I think that for me was, was also really important that I trusted that the people around him were really good people and it's like, well, if he did all the things that they've accused him of, could could he conceivably have these really good people around him? So it wasn't just me meeting him and making any kind of judgment. It was I'm very much about the documents, very much about the statements of who's who's saying what and very much about the perceptions from a whole host of people. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned about the family. It made me recall an interview we did with Graeme Stafford who was jailed in Queensland for the murder of a young girl, Leanne Holland, and he went to jail and he was a, convicted as a child murderer and his family would go and see him like every week. He would still have friends come every week and we were talking to him about that and that is apparently quite unusual for people in jail that, you know, they have family support that 
endures. So it just made me think of that. And his family were visiting him every week. I think it was like a 600 kilometre round trip. And at that stage, I think uh, Diddy had the two kids and Paul is and remains today so thankful that they stood by him and his parents went every other, you know, weekend and it was just horrendous. So this whole family, how do you get that back? How do you, you can't rewind that. Who's got the most to lose with this Royal Commission? One of the things we mentioned in the book is that when all of the detectives, I think the ones that were minding Nicola Gobbo, all got together and did a brainstorming session on what's the worst disaster scenario about what we're doing. And I say in the book, you can only imagine what that butcher paper looked like, but pretty much they came up with the reputation of the Victoria Police will be in tatters. There'll be a Royal Commission. There'll be books. There'll be movies and Nicola's life will be in danger. And it was like they had a crystal ball. And no one comes out of this unscathed, not least the taxpayer, because my estimation, I think the latest estimation for the Royal Commission is that it's going to cost about, I think, $28 million. That will no doubt blow out again. The cost to the taxpayer to keep it under wraps with the legal wranglings before the Royal Commission was announced and Nicola was named, was about $4.5 Nicola was paid $310,000 to protect her. She sues the Victoria Police for $2.88 So that's, let's round it off to three. So when you look at the Royal Commission plus what she's got paid plus the money that it's cost them to keep it in wraps, we're already mid-30s. And one can only imagine the kind of compensation that someone like Farouk Orman might sue for. So what we're going to get is all of the things that Vic Pohl is saying they tried to protect us from, getting the bad guys off the streets, doing what's right, the end justifies the means. In the book we say, well, what is the end? If the end justifies the means, what will the end be? If it costs $50 million, if the bad guys are released en masse from jail, that's your end. And that's what I find really disturbing. So who's the loser? I don't know, the taxpayer. The people of Victoria are the losers. The reputation of the police... I think the more that you have these senior police officers standing up saying, well, you know, apparently the use of a criminal barrister against her clients, well, apparently that's not very ethical. It's like, no shit, Sherlock. I think there's always been court cases in our history where you think someone, we saw it with Jaden Lesky, there were people that looked suspicious and Greg Domasevich was charged and he was found not guilty. And I think there's a sense of if you can't get him fair and square, you can't get him. Maybe he's not guilty. And what has happened in this case that has twisted all of that kind of logic is that with Paul, if they couldn't get him fair and square, they paid Carl Williams. If they couldn't get that, they offered a million dollars to Rod Collins, who's if you read his transcripts of his interview, he's a complete nutbag. He's, he's dead now. Completely insane. The question I always wondered was if this happened to him, could it happen to me? And if his phone could be illegally tapped for five years or whatever, then could my phone have been tapped? 
and I, I always suspected that it was when I was doing that book. I always suspected we had some weird things happen at our house, and I, I just always suspected that there could have been surveillance involved. One of the things was that if people were ringing on our home phone, and it's been happening again lately, so who knows? I, I mean, I'm not saying any state secrets, so, uh, but there'd be a weird, weird clicking sound. One day when I was in writing the book and initially my sister was living here and she looks like me and my husband and I had gone off to work and then she thought she heard us come back and she heard the door open between the house into the garage and she called out, oh, have you come back? And there was no one there. So she felt she heard someone entering our house and look, just things like that and I could be being paranoid but there was some weird and then one day she was followed by someone in a van and when they pulled up next to her, it, there was someone in a police uniform. So we certainly were aware that that was a possibility. But, you know, I'm a teacher. I, I don't even drink. I don't. There's nothing that they're going to get on me apart from someone who's just trying to tell a story. Uh, so it didn't really worry me because I'm not doing anything wrong and I always understood that possibility. I think as a crime writer, if you were worried about the risks associated with what you did, you, you couldn't do what you did. You have to be a little bit fearless. So, you know, we got glimpses of what his life must have been like and that's the thing that if you don't care about him, you still need to care about what happened to him because... The process was so skewed in the end that it just twisted and turned and became crazy. And could it happen to the next person? But I think our justice system steps up to the plate and the Royal Commission hopefully will stand up and say, you can't do that ever again. I remember when we had lots of police shootings in the 90s and they had lots and lots of studies and they had retraining of all police officers and then that stopped. And so I think sometimes when you start to go down an incorrect path, something like a Royal Commission happens to blow it all up and go, you can't do that, that's wrong. And so that's as much as we can hope from this. Before we go, there is one very interesting detail about the robbery at Dublin Street that we haven't mentioned yet. And it may introduce another significant risk to Terry Hodson's health. The house in question was part of the Mockbell network. The other murder that's often associated with Paul Dale is that of gangster Carl Williams. Carl was again waiting to give evidence against Paul when he was murdered. In this case, it was for commissioning the murders of the Hodsons. Again, Carl's murder saw the case against Paul fall apart. But again there are other details that have been somewhat lost to the sands of time. Carl Williams' family fought for an inquest, but in 2014, Victoria's then chief coroner said Carl's death was one of the most investigated events in Victoria's history and an inquest would only duplicate work that's already been carried out. But I have to say, I back Carl's family here. His murder has been investigated by a Victoria Police Task Force review an Office of Correctional Services Review and an Office of Police Integrity Probe. Not to mention the Victorian Ombudsman, who was so cross, he made 56 recommendations. But as far as I can see, none of them have answered the key questions, let alone held anyone responsible for some pretty incomprehensible failings. How is it possible 
that staff in one of Australia's most secure prison units could fail to notice an inmate's been bashed to death in broad daylight for 27 minutes, even though the entire incident was covered from all angles by CCTV cameras. How was it possible that Matthew Johnson, the man who conducted the bashing with an unsecured metal pipe from an exercise bike, was allowed access to that weapon, given that he'd earlier used exactly the same implement in another serious assault on another prisoner in the same jail? And how is it possible that Carl Williams, Australia's most notorious gangster, was so vulnerable in a facility built to house terrorists On the very day the newspaper carried a front-page headline alleging he'd become a police informant in return for his daughter's school fees. In December 2019, the Royal Commission into the Management of Police Informants heard that by 2006, Carl Williams had grown suspicious of Nicola Gobbo. He was no longer using her legal services himself, but in a letter from his prison cell, he told a mate, that she was continually visiting prisoners she wasn't acting for. And he was convinced she was getting people to roll, that is, to work with police and give evidence against him. Of course, he was right. Carl and his ex-wife Roberta went so far as to write to several legal authorities to raise concerns about her unethical behaviour, including the Legal Ombudsman and the Victorian Bar Ethics Committee. Their complaints were dismissed. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week with Mandy Hodson. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.